Like we know that sin is bad. Like all you guys are giving me right answers. The wages of sin is death. Uh, we get guilt and shame whenever we sin. But I, I don't think that we really know just how bad sin really is. But at least we know that it's not good. I think one of the consequences of sin is that it puts a barrier between us and everybody else, including those we love and including God. That's one of the biggest consequences of sin is that it puts a barrier between us because sin always, uh, at the fundamental level, sin creates selfishness inside of us. That's one of the main things that sin does is it puts selfishness inside of us. It makes everything oriented towards ourselves and towards what we want and our desires. And that always causes a rift in every relationship we have. And that's why two weeks ago we talked a little bit about relationships. We said wives were supposed to submit to their husbands the way that we submit to Jesus um, but husbands are supposed to love their wives the same way that Jesus loved the church. And so when you do that, what you have left is a relationship where both sides are trying to outdo each other in love. And that is a relationship that flourishes. The gospel goes beyond just a relationship with our most intimate relationships between husband and wives. And the gospel has a lot to say with how believers live their lives in the world. How we treat our parents and how our parents treat their children and how we treat our bosses and how we work and also how the bosses treat us. The gospel has a lot to say about how we live because the gospel informs and it transforms all of life. So as you already heard, we are in Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, um, you can open up. If you have a real Bible, go ahead and put it in the air real quick. Let's see all the real Bibles in the air. Boom, that's a lot of points right there. In heaven, I'm just kidding. That, that almost works. Half, half real. Half divided by two. That's what I mean. Um, so Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, uh, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. At that point, all the parents are clapping their hands and yes. Um, fathers, don't stir up your anger. Um, in your children, but bring them up in training in the instruction of the Lord. So the first thing we see right off the bat is that how you treat your parents matters to God. You might be thinking like, God, like you can have a lot of my relationship, like you can have a lot about my life, but why do you care about what I, how I treat my parents? God cares about how we treat our parents. It matters to him. This is one of the commandments. It says it's one of the first commandments of the promise. Um, this is actually one of the Ten Commandments. But the promise in the, in the Old Testament was that if you treat your, if you honor and obey your parents, that it may go well with you in the land. And so this promise, it was actually more of like a proverb than it was a promise. Like you can't just expect like I obeyed my parents. I took out the trash. Therefore, I'm going to get a new car. Like, that's not the way that that works. It's more like a proverb in, in a general sense. Like, if you always honor and obey your parents, then you can expect that your life is going to turn out better than if you would have otherwise. That's kind of what Paul is saying here. And th you can think about that like the opposite. Like, think about a time where you directly disobeyed or dishonored your parents. How good was your life after that? It probably wasn't too good. You're probably grounded without a phone or without whatever you guys really like these days. I, I think it's a phone, right? What's the worst thing a parent could take from you? <laughs> yes, if they take your life. That is the bed, yes. So, obviously, if you, if you disobey and you dishonor your parents, your life is obviously not as good as it was before. But it's kind of the same principle on the other hand. Like if you always try to seek to honor and obey your parents, 
then your life will generally just go better. And the obey part is like when you're under your household, then you're looking to your parents as the authority, whether you agree with what they say or not, whether you like what they say or not, whether you like what they tell you to do or not. We see them as the ultimate authority of our lives because we know that Jesus is the authority in our life. And then the honor is like even after you move out, you still honor your parents. So Paul is showing us that the gospel is countercultural and that Jesus' father, Jesus' followers are also supposed to be countercultural. So now the easy part's over. Um, now it's time to get to the fun part. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart, as you would for Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude. Ask to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way, without threatening them. Because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with them. So, first thing off the bat we see there, um, and Paul, he is talking about slavery. So, slavery was a thing in the first century, just like how slavery has been around in the world. Um, but it was, a, it was a very popular thing that happened. I think at one point when Paul was writing this, 35% of the entire Roman Empire were, were slaves um, at that point. Like, think about how many people that was. It was a very common thing. Um, But the slavery that took place in the Roman Empire in the first century was a lot different than the slavery we know about in American history. There are two different things. Um, But that does not make it better. Like, we're going to get through, like, how it is. Because slavery that always involves owning another person and, and taking away their freedom by another person, that is always wrong. That's the definition of slavery. That is always wrong. So, whenever we read Paul's letters, including Ephesians, one thing that is clear to point out is that we don't see Paul using the Bible. We don't see Paul using theology to try to justify why slavery is right or okay. Instead, Paul assumes that this bad thing is happening in the culture. And so he is writing to the people on how, or writing to Christians on how to be a Christian even while, even while this evil stuff is happening in the culture. So that's one thing that we have to understand that Paul is doing. He's not saying, he's not advocating for it. He's not saying that it's okay. He's assuming that this has already taken place. And he's trying to give people who are in this dark place tools on how to thrive and still be a Jesus follower even when this bad stuff is happening. And so there's a lot of different ways that um, slavery in the Roman world is different within the way that we know slavery whenever we heard about it in the history class. Um, and you can see it right there. Roman slavery... Racial factors played no role. Like they didn't just enslave Egyptians or just um, anybody else. Um, instead, Rome was always on a war path. They were always conquering, always getting more land. And so slaves were usually those who were conquered. Like if your town got taken over by the Roman Empire, womp, womp, you're now a slave. That's basically how that happened. Um, many slaves, honestly, could they, they could have reasonably expected to be freed during their lifetime. Um, owners usually paid their slaves a uh, sum of money for work. So you think about slavery in the Roman Empire as almost like, like they own them in, still in a sense, but they still pay them and they could expect to be freed within a certain me- amount of years. Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized or responsible 
positions. This is not the way in American slavery, but in Roman slavery, like they were tent makers or they did very specific things that were valuable to the person who owned them. Excuse me. Um, many slaves received education. And, and then the freed slaves, they often became Roman citizens, and then they set up business partnerships with those who were previously their masters. So those are the main differences between what Paul is writing about and the, the difference that we know about American slavery, which was way worse and, and horrible. So in spite of these differences, it's, not, it's important not to think that the ancient form was better or that it was okay because it is never okay and it never was okay for another person to have ownership of another person. And that's actually what Paul believed. And now you might be thinking, like, what does this have to do with me? Like, I live in America. Slavery, slavery has been gone for a hundred years. Um, what does this have to do with me? Like, slavery isn't a thing anymore. It, it is a thing still. There's about 40 million people who are slaves today in the world right now. And it's not happening in America, but in, in the world, you can expect to find 40 million people who are slaves in the sense that we know and understand. And a lot of this includes sex trafficking. So you might be thinking still, like, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me in America? Like, we don't have slaves anymore. I'm not going to become a slave. What does this have to do with me? Why or what can I take from this to become a better Jesus follower um, after reading this? How does this apply to me? So here's the main point. If slaves could learn to obey their masters because of the change that has taken place in their heart, how much more can we obey and serve those that we work for? So think about what Paul is saying here. He's writing to somebody um, who is literally owned by somebody else, and he's writing to them, and he's saying, you should work not for them, but for Jesus if a slave could wrap their head around that because God literally changed and transformed their lives, then how much more can we obey our parents or how much more can we obey our teachers or the government that's over us? How much more can we obey them because of the change that has taken place in our heart? The gospel informs and it transforms every part of your life, including your work life, including the life, um, including your school life, including your life where your parents are over you, including every part of your life. Uh, and it even includes doing something that you don't want to do. So let's dive into to, uh, verse 5 through 8. He says, again, slaves obey your masters with fear and trembling in, in the sincerity of your heart as you would for Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive it back from the Lord. And so the first thing we see right there is fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that slaves were to approach the masters like in, in terror, but it does mean like fear and respect, a deep respect, kind of like the respect you would have whenever you would come uh, to Jesus. And that's how a follower of Jesus is supposed to treat all who are in authority over us. We believe that God has put people in authority over us, and so that is how we treat them. So whether we like them or not or agree with them, we believe that God put them in authority over us, and therefore we respect and obey them. This is a tangent, this part's on my notes, but Paul, he writes in, in Romans chapter 13, he says that you should obey the government that's over you. You might be thinking, like, Paul, you don't understand the government that's over us. Like, 
like you don't understand the leaders that we have. Like how can we respect? How can we do what they say? The leader that Paul was talking about whenever he wrote Romans and he says you need to respect your leaders was literally a crazy guy who set his city on fire and would torture Christians and throw them in the lion's dens. And he says even that guy, even that guy who might torture and kill you, like respect that guy. That's the kind of change that the gospel expects to take place in our heart. And then Paul, like he says, we need to, with fear and trembling, um, then he goes into our work ethic. So followers of Jesus, no matter what the job is or what needs to be done, we work just as hard when no one is around as we do when people are around. That's what a, a Jesus follower does. That's what someone who's been changed and transformed on the inside, that's what they do. They work just as hard when no one's watching as they do as if everybody was watching. And so Paul, he literally makes up a word here that's never been used before. And so whenever it says while being watched in the Greek, it's actually one word. But it's actually not even a word in the Greek. It's the, the first time it's ever been used was right here by Paul. He just made it up. And it literally is the compound word between I and service. He says, like, we don't just do I service. We don't just do things to be, to be um, to, for people to see us. He says that is fake. It, it is fake to, be, to, to work hard just when people are watching or just when people might give you applause or just give you a thank you. That's fake. Uh, instead, you work hard regardless of people are watching or not. How Christians behave when their boss turns his back or leaves is just as important as how you work and serve whenever he is there. Believers have a higher calling that. And we know people that do that. Like whenever you're, like think about whenever you're on the sports team or you're on the band and it's time to start cleaning up and start to pack up um, and then people are, are working real hard whenever the coach is there or the band director is there and then they turn around and like, okay, now it's just time to lay back and chill. Or think about your job, like whenever the boss is gone for a little bit, like, okay, now it's just time for us to mess around. That's not the way that it, it's supposed to work. I mean, there's a time to have fun. But you don't just work hard just for the boss to see you working hard. Instead, followers of Jesus should be motivated to serve the boss, to serve the organization, to serve wherever they are, because we ultimately know that we serve Jesus, not them. Our ultimate authority, our ultimate teacher, our ultimate coach, our ultimate boss is Jesus, not the human person that we're actually serving. Paul, he says that we are slaves of Christ. He says, you, 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 you think you're a slave? No, you're a slave of Christ. We belong to someone who has way more authority, who has way more honor than any kind of coach or any kind of teacher or any kind of parent or any kind of president. We serve someone who has the ultimate authority. He has all power. So it doesn't matter if the person you work for is watching because we serve Jesus. And as slaves of Christ, we've served someone that God has exalted above every earthly or heavenly power. We, we talked about it a few months ago. Remember, Jesus is all-powerful. Everything is going to be under his feet. And that is who we belong to. We belong to and serve the greatest boss or the greatest teacher of all. Another motivation to serve and to work well is because God promises to reward us for our work. We see that in, in verses 7 through 8. It says, serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive it back from the Lord. God sees what we do. 
And it says that he will reward us. So although it's part of God's plan for every person who comes into relationship with Jesus to do good works, we see that in 2 verse 10. Um, Paul wants every follower of Jesus to know that our good works are noticed by the one master who really cares and that they will be rewarded. He says, whenever you do something good, whether someone's watching or not, whether it's just you in the room or whenever everyone else is around you, whatever you do, there is someone who's watching and he says he will reward you for it. Like that's another, another motivation that we have. And so here's a little bit more on that. The only other time that this word is used for receive, like he says you will receive a reward. The only other time Paul uses that word for receive, he's referring to the end time judgment. That's whenever we receive the rewards or the judgment that we get for the things that we did. It's at the end times. So in the end time judgment, our works and our deeds and our service, they will be evaluated and rewarded by God. And now this has nothing to do with salvation. This is already, salvation is already secure. You're already in heaven. And then after that, that's whenever your good works or not good works will be weighed and and evaluated and judged by Jesus. Here's what he says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now he's just talking to Christians here. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And what he's talking about in the body, he's talking about the church. What gifts, what service has you offered to the church as a body? He says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and he will reward us for the good or for the evil. He also uses that same word for receive and in Colossians chapter 3 to refer to the, the consequences that those who are not Christians will face whenever they stand before God. Colossians chapter 3, he says, Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done to the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Then he says, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. So right here, Paul, he's trying to get us to grasp a bigger picture of what we do. Everything that we say or do or think it matters. And so a lot of times, listen to me now, a lot of times we fall into the trap of the thinking that the mundane, the here and now stuff, the stuff that is small, the stuff that that we don't like to do, the small little things, we think that it doesn't matter, especially whenever it's hard, especially when it takes effort, especially whenever we are too tired or we don't want to, we think it doesn't matter. But Paul, he's trying to get us to wrap our head around the, the fact that what we do matters in the big picture. Even the things you do behind closed doors, even the things you do when no one's watching, those little bitty things that you say or do or think, they all matter in the big picture because there is someone who sees everything and there's someone who knows everything. Everything we do matters. There's nothing that we do that is small and insignificant in God's eyes. And now that is good news for those of you who think that no one notices that no one sees what you're doing. No one sees the effort. No one knows what you're going through. No one knows how hard it is. That's good news because God knows. And he says he will reward you for that. The big picture. How we treat our friends matters. How we treat our family matters. How we treat our enemies, those that we really hate, those that we really dislike. How we treat them, it matters. And how we work when no one is around, it all 
matters. And so even though life is hard and even though we might be asked to do something that makes no sense or we think it might, um, might be hard, we do it anyways because God sees what is done in secret and he knows our heart and he will reward us one day in the end times, he says. The band will go ahead and come back. It's easy to get this wrong, though. It's easy to, uh, to fall on one side or the other on this. And so a lot of times, it seems like people fall on one side or the other. And let me explain. So it's easy to hear a message like this and to get motivated to go do good things. To hear a message like this and be like, okay, now I want to serve. Now I want to just give everything I have to God. I want to do things in public. I want to do things in private. I want to serve God. I want to serve my friends. I want to start doing all the good things I can so I can get a great reward in heaven. That's all good. That's all good things. That's what this message is for. It's to motivate us not just to sit around but to do things for God. But it's easy to let that mindset start to let us drift and make you think that you're now earning God's favor. Like now you think that God likes you more because now you're doing more good things. This is a trap I fell into before. I thought, okay, I'm reading my Bible every day. Now God likes me more. I'm inviting all my friends to church. That means now God must like me more. I'm doing these good things whether people see it or not. That must mean that God likes me more. And that is a bad view of God. God doesn't like you more or less based on the things that you do. That's not what this is talking about. Because that mindset also got me into the trap of thinking, dang, I just messed up again. God must not like me anymore. I, 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 I forgot to read my Bible today. That means God must be less happy with me. I let that piece of trash stay underground when I could have threw it away. That means that, that, that now God doesn't like me as much anymore. That's the trap that we fall into. So it's easy to hear this message and get motivated to do good things. But that does not earn you more of God's favor. And that is, it definitely doesn't earn you salvation. It doesn't earn you your spot in heaven. That's not what this is about. It's a dangerous trap. On the other hand, it's easy to fall on the other side. We read a, a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, and we believe the opposite. Ephesians chapter 2, we talked about this months ago. It says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. It's not from works so that nobody can boast. So that is Paul. He's describing salvation. He says, when you are saved, it is not because you did anything yourself. You could not have worked hard enough. You could not have been a good enough person. There's nothing you could have ever done to make God love you any more or any less. There's nothing you could have ever done to, to earn the salvation. That's like trying, like, you think you're a good swimmer so you can swim from New York City to London. And it's not going to happen. There's nothing you can do in your personal strength to do it. That's what Paul is talking about, so that nobody can boast. But it's easy to read that and think, I'm saved. I'm saved by grace. God has chosen me. I can't do anything to earn it. I can't do anything to deserve it. That part's 100% true. You can't do anything to earn or deserve God's salvation. But it's easy to also let that mindset start to drift and make you lazy to the point where people can't even tell that your life has been changed or transformed. What do I mean by that? It means, okay, I'm saved by grace. It's not because I'm a good person that God saved me. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. Like I can, I can still drink on the weekends. I can still cuss. I can still do all these bad things before because it wasn't because I cleaned myself up that got me saved anyways. It's by God's grace. He's going to forgive me. That's not what Paul's saying there either. There's a fine line. 
between how we live and how we act and how we are saved. And I also fell into that trap. So what is the middle? So what is the truth? How do we live in between? They're both true. It is true that you are saved by grace, not by works that no one can boast, but we were also created in Christ to do good works. And those good works will receive a reward in heaven. So those two are both true at the same time. So where is the middle? What do we do with that? What we do is we fall on the mercy of Jesus. Every single one of us, every single day, every morning, every night, we fall on the mercy of Jesus. We say, Jesus, thank you for your mercy. God, I need your mercy. Because there is nothing in me that deserves your mercy or your grace. So we surrender our lives to Jesus. We surrender to him. We make him the king of our life. We make him our master. We make him our Lord. We make him our boss. We make him the authority figure. We say, Jesus, you are now in charge, and I want to do what you tell me to do. I want to obey you. We fall in the mercy. We make him our Lord, and we offer our whole life to God as a sacrifice out of the amazement, out of the wonder of his grace, and then we allow his spirit to change us and to transform us on the inside. And then it is after that happens, after we have fallen the mercy of Jesus, after we submit and surrender to him, after we allow the spirit to transform us, then we begin to do the good works that God has prepared for us so that we can glorify God with everything that we do. That's the middle. That's, that's what we do. We don't try to do good things so we can earn God's favor. But when you're saved, God expects your life to look different. He expects us to obey those in honor to obey and honor those in authority, to obey your parents, to obey your teachers, to obey, to obey anybody that's an authority of you because we serve someone who is an ultimate authority over them. It's by grace. Every head bowed, every eye closed.